Welcome to uh, Hudson's Conference on Taiwan and the Future of Regional Security in the Pacific. Some of you may have read uh, Bill Gertz's article in yesterday's Washington Free Beacon. Bill is a good and reliable reporter. Are you here today, Bill? <laughs> no, I don't see him. He wrote a story about a Chinese attack submarine simulated cruise missile uh, attack on the aircraft carrier Ronald Reagan. Gertz's article correctly notes that this is not the first time that a Chinese submarine challenged a U.S. aircraft carrier. The first time that we know of took place in 2006 when a Chinese Song-class attack sub surfaced within torpedo range of the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. I think it's important to note that the incident is said to have occurred in late October, that that incident which occurred in late October is a violation of the multinational code for unplanned encounters at sea, which is intended to reduce the risk of accidental hostilities at sea, quite important. China signed that agreement last year. It violated it in October. China's disregard for international norms is hardly news. It has been abundantly demonstrated in, for example, placing an oil rig in Vietnam's exclusive economic zone, in its declaration of an air defense identification zone above the international waters uh, in the West Pacific, in the building and arming of shoals, uh, reefs, and atolls in the international waters of the South China Sea, and also in bullying its neighbors uh, with force in the same area. What's new about Chinese behavior is, in, in the region, is the form in which they violate international norms. A more vivid contrast to how others in the region are seeking to resolve territorial and sovereignty disputes is unimaginable. For example, last month's agreement between Taiwan and the Philippines over law enforcement cooperation on questions raised by competing fishing claims. The November agreement calls for both Taiwan and the Philippines to provide one-hour notification to one another before either side takes action when authorities believe that a vessel is fishing illegally. It's complicated. You don't, you know, there are no lines on the sea that show you sometimes uh, a shipping vessel, a fishing vessel, especially a fishing vessels, uh, navigational equipment is not always on target. So reaching an agreement like this makes sense and it's important. More important is the spirit in which both parties, Taiwan and the Philippines, acted to resolve an outstanding issue between them. 
It's a good example of peace and compromise. Let's hope that it serves as an example for peaceful resolution of other perplexing issues in the same region. For example, Manila, in an arbitration case with mainland China, currently argues that Taiping Island in the Spratly Group is a rock, not an island. Taiwan thinks otherwise, and with some reason. Taiping, also known as Itu Aba, is slightly less than a mile long and approximately a quarter mile wide. I think of a rock as something that I can throw, or at least move with a backhoe. The same cannot be said of Taiping, on which there is arable land and water as well as human inhabitants. Not a rock. But again, the details are less important than the spirit of cooperation that characterizes democratic Taiwan's approach to resolving questions about Taiping's status. The same effort to find solutions to regional problems characterized Taiwan President Ma's meeting with PRC President Xi earlier uh, in November. This was the first meeting of the two sides' leaders since 1949. Uh, I don't believe that discussion is an end in itself. I don't think that it assures anything, but it is an important step toward, for example, the mainland's lifting its threat of violence to resolve outstanding issues with Taiwan. Again, let's hope that discussion can lead to such peaceful results as Taiwan and the Philippines achieved in their fisheries agreement on law enforcement cooperation. But neither the Taiwanese nor any other people can base their security on just hope. This is why I was gratified last week to hear a senior U.S. senator say, tell me, that is, that the Obama administration had assured him earlier that day that it would be sending Congress an arms sale proposal for Taiwan this month. Uh, for more on this, I'm going to stop talking and turn the discussion over to my colleagues Rick Fisher and Ian Easton, who will look at the U.S.-Taiwan defense relationship, uh, including arms sales, uh, recent developments, regional security, and the raft of issues that are uh, important to us here this morning. Uh, Richard Fisher, Rick, is a senior fellow with the International Assessment and Strategy Center. He is author of China's Military Modernization, uh, Building for Regional and Global Reach, and an old friend. Ian is a research fellow at the Project 2049 Institute, where he conducts research on defense and security issues in Asia. Previously, he was a visiting fellow at the Japan Institute for International Affairs in Tokyo and a China analyst at the Center for Naval 
analyses, and he is a new friend. Um, and uh, let me turn the, uh, the mic over here to Rick. And uh, I just ask one thing. When uh, we're done with, uh, with Rick's and Ian's presentations and we have a question period, would you please be so good as to, when you were recognized, uh, identify yourself and your organization, no affiliation? Thank you. Welcome again. Rick? Well, it's certainly a pleasure to join my old boss, Seth Cropsey, uh, back at uh, the Hudson Institute. Uh, at one time, uh, Back in uh, the early 1990s, late 1980s, Seth and I worked for a fellow named Burton Yale Pines. I think probably the purest combination of an editor and a drill sergeant. Fine fellow, fine fellow. Our first topic this morning is the military relationship between the United States and Taiwan. And I simply wanted to first acknowledge this is the Christmas season. We will address the Christmas arms package that could be announced uh, any, any hour, or at least hopefully uh, by the end of this week, and uh, then examine a path forward. What should our next administration be considering in terms of what is really required, not just for Taiwan, but for the United States position as well, to continue to deter China from considering military options against Taiwan and maintaining the basically the armed peace that we have worked so hard to establish for generations. The 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, which many of you are intimately familiar with, perhaps some of you helped to uh, put that act into, into effect, endures as a basis for American strategy today. It's three major pillars to make clear that any that the United States' decision to establish diplomatic relations with the PRC rests on the expectation that the future of Taiwan will be determined by peaceful means. That implies that if China decides differently, the basis for who we recognize could change quickly. Second, to provide Taiwan with arms of a defensive character. That definition, defensive, has expanded over time but still provides a basis for helping Taiwan to ensure that by itself, it's able to deter China. And then the third pillar of the TRA, maintain the capacity of the United States to resist any resort to force or forms of coercion. That means build up and modernize American forces in Asia in order to be able to deter or defeat China's burgeoning military 
modernized military forces. Indeed, as this relationship has evolved, there has been a basic shift in American political attitudes. In the 1970s, Taiwan was largely viewed as a problem that impeded our more important Cold War objective of relations with China. Today, we are seeing all over this town a much deeper appreciation of Taiwan's value to U.S. objectives as a democratic culture. Just uh, last March, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Ken Moy, in a speech, called Taiwan an important multiplier of our influence in the region. This friendship is grounded in history, shared values, our common commitment to democracy, free markets, rule of law, human rights. This is what we say about defense treaty allies. I can't imagine our ever saying this about the dictatorship in Beijing. Our military relationship with Taiwan has also seen vast shifts. From 1955 to 1979, we had a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. We stationed forces on Taiwan that were used extensively during the Vietnam conflict. For a spell, late 50s, early 60s, we even based nuclear missiles on Taiwan. In the 70s and the 80s, equipping Taiwan to maintain technical superiority over the People's Liberation Army was relatively easy given China's state of weakness, po political chaos emerging from the Cultural Revolution, and then the reorganization under Deng in the 1980s. But Taiwan arms sales have always been a political football. There has been a pattern of boom and bust. Big packages separated by a lengthy period of hand-wringing and indecision, and then finally, another major arms package. But there's also been a renewed appreciation since the late 1990s, starting with, with Kurt Campbell, of the need to examine deeply Taiwan's requirements and address needs that might not otherwise be met, and to engage more deeply with our Taiwan friends to see that real progress is made in securing their future, be it uh, looking at their, and, and also Taiwan's defense agenda has changed somewhat as the military, the Ministry of Defense, the legislature, and even the president have responded to popular democratic demands for an all-volunteer force for greater investment in their own defense sector. The challenge is, however, one challenge has remained, and that is how to deter China. China has never abandoned its goal to take Taiwan. I would submit that if China ever were allowed to subdue Taiwan, take over Taiwan, that would be a disaster, not just for the people of Taiwan, but for Taiwan's neighbors, and very soon directly 
for the United States because having, sub having subdued one democracy, China will start taking on other democracies, Japan, the Philippines, and very quickly will find itself in conflict with this democracy. And we must also consider the requirements that China is imposing on us to maintain Taiwan's edge into the future, which also places requirements on the United States. Okay, here we go. So now we consider the Christmas package. I'm sure many of us checked the Defense uh, Assistance, Security Assistance webpage this morning to see if the announcement was, was made. It's uh, largely expected to drop this week. Uh, if passed as prologue, we might have to wait until Friday, Friday afternoon, which means a late happy hour for our journalist friends. But still, reports about this package indicate that it'll be about a billion dollars and consists of two frigates, some amphibious assault vehicles to help replenish uh, the, the Taiwan Marines inventory, one replacement helicopter, attack helicopter, and then a, a substantial number of uh, tactical missiles for the Army. Uh, what we're not hearing is that it, might, that it will address Taiwan's recent requirement for assistance for its indigenous submarine program. No indication that it will address requirements for more fighters, new fighters to replace old ones. Uh, the M1, A1 main battle tank, something that's been discussed for, for a number of years, or what we're hearing, at least a, a positive indication from uh, American officials, is a discussion in terms of meeting Taiwan's requirement for future asymmetric weapons. But a limited arms package while a welcome small tactical game, gain and symbolic assurance as Taiwan nears its national election, sadly does not respond to the many looming threats from China and delays larger decisions until future administrations, both in Taipei and in Washington. But even before this package is formally announced, China is not in the Christmas spirit. China is mad. Uh, yesterday, uh, the foreign ministry blasted uh, the proposed arms sale as highly, as, as dangerous. An even more subtle attack came out yesterday in uh, the Global Times, which is uh, affiliated with, uh, China, owned by a branch of China's state media. The Global Times offered criticism that the arms package is not a big deal because the weapons we're selling are outdated. I mention this because it's important to push back against this kind of Chinese propaganda. The frigates are armed with very effective supersonic missiles. They can go after submarines. They will carry advanced, eventually, adva the best anti-submarine helicopter. This package does have to go forward. It will make a difference. Not as much as we want, 
but it's something to be grateful for. How will China respond to this package? In the past, they have suspended military-to-military -military dialogue with the United States. Certainly possible. But in the current period, we might even see real harassment of the kind that, that Seth mentioned uh, in his opening comments uh, in the South China Sea, the East China Sea. Will China resume full conventional arms sales to Iran? The Russians are doing so. Maybe the Chinese will follow suit. I mean, they've been selling parts of things to Iran for a long time. And China could sell more tr uh, trucks for carrying ICBMs to North Korea. They've sold at least six of these trucks to North Korea. They have appeared in, in North Korean parades three or four times. North Korea doesn't make those trucks. They have to get them from China. But to answer the Chinese foreign ministry, it has to be said that our, our, our arms sales to Taiwan, continued arms sales, make possible what the foreign minister called for, the peaceful development of cross-strait relations. They give Taiwan the confidence that it requires to go forward in its attempt to fashion a peaceful relationship with China. These arms sales also serve to help preserve the peace between China and the United States. Now, the enduring aspects of China's policy are illustrated by, by these two images. Here we see a sort of a China eye, a Beijing eye view into the Pacific. Of course, as has often been pointed out, Taiwan exists as kind of a nose on China's face. It blocks the realization of what Xi Jinping calls the China dream. Now, those who describe the China dream in some, some detail say very clearly that the China dream is the day in which China becomes the militarily dominant country on the planet. In order for that to happen, China has to control Taiwan and has to control the South China Sea, which is working very hard to do. In addition, this topography that uh, was displayed by the Taiwan Coast Guard in Taipei in August shows that to the east of Taiwan exist perhaps the deepest submarine patrol areas in the Pacific. This is where you want to put your SSBN patrols, which, have, which China has just started uh, this year, sometime this year. Other threats that I'll run through quickly. Chinese PLA modernization priorities have also shifted. In the 1990s, there was a great emphasis on building up the capacity for very broad technical modernization. There was a focus on aerospace, missiles and aircraft, engines. By early in the last decade, the emphasis shifted 
toward a more balanced emphasis on aerospace plus ground force and power projection. For the last 15 years, there has been a growing investment in new generations of armored amphibious assault vehicles and in building the capacity to transport larger number of forces possibly to Taiwan. Now, will Taiwan, will they invade Taiwan? Can they even succeed in doing so? That's kind of a separate question. But are they working the problem? Are they building new capabilities? Are they practicing these capabilities? That answer is yes. One point that really stands out in my recent research is the degree to which the PLA is able to mobilize a very impressive number of civilian controlled ships. Those who have been watching the island construction in the South China Sea have noticed if you go to the high resolution satellite photos that, that uh, pepper the internet, you'll see hundreds of one kind of ship close to these islands. These are roll on roll off barges. There are probably hundreds if not thousands of these barges plying China's rivers, uh, forming the basis for China's commerce. A couple of hundred of these barges were mobilized to build the buildings in the South China, build the islands in the South China Sea. These ships, along with much larger roll-on, roll-off ferries, 20 to, to 40, 30 of which have been built in, in just the last decade, form the basis for estimates in Taiwan that combining formal military plus civilian lift could potentially allow the PLA to take eight to 12 divisions to Taiwan. Now, will they get there? Will they survive? Those are different questions. But this is a, a, a real danger and one that has to be addressed. There are potential new threats in terms of short-range ballistic missiles. It's a threat that has received a great deal of press over the last 15 years because of the PLA's first generation of short-range ballistic missiles, the DF-15, the DF-11. Well, in the last several years, the two major Chinese missile companies have developed a second generation of short-range ballistic missile. Instead of just one missile per launcher truck, the next generation from both countries can carry up to five. A larger SRBM combined with a box that contains four smaller but still adequate range SRBMs based on artillery rockets. If you take numbers provided by the Pentagon, the last year they did so was 2010, and you multiply the number of high number of launchers that the Pentagon gave us times five, and then you add two more reloads, or three reloads, you get to about 5,000 missiles. Two reloads is about 3,700 missiles. So the number of missiles could expand from current estimates of 1,200 to 
3,000, 5,000, if China decides to go in this direction. And there are indications that it very well may do so. The air balance is also becoming worse for Taiwan. By 2020, our friends in Taiwan estimate that there may be 1,500 fourth generation fighters in the PLA Air Force inventory. Taiwan's fighter numbers will probably remain steady at about 350 to 400. That's not a, that's not a good balance. Uh, these fighters are becoming modern, cutting edge, increasingly armed with electronic scanning array radar. Uh, Taiwan's technical edge is also being threatened. And finally, the PLA is expanding its ability to keep the Americans away, keep the Americans away from intervening on Taiwan's behalf, which they call their counter-intervention strategy, we call anti-access. The first generation of anti-access systems is shifting into a second generation before we've come up with an adequate response to the first generation in ICBMs, anti-ship ballistic missiles, bombers will be with us by the middle of the next decade. Okay, options for going forward. The delay, four-year delay between the current and the previous arms sales package, I believe has forced the next administration to consider another large arms sales package as happened in 2001. That would be a good move. And I can also see that based on the priorities in Taipei, bipartisan priorities, such an arms sales package should include, if there is agreement on the American side, a real assistance package to help Taiwan's indigenous submarine program, provided that business is, is still available, Taiwan hasn't moved on. There should be an immediate offer of either used F-16s or possibly used Harrier aircraft if new aircraft are judged to be too expensive. Then there should be assistance for the rebuilding of Taiwan's capacity to make its own indigenous combat aircraft. And the heart of that package should be a real engine. We have the option, the General Electric makes a wonderful medium thrust turbofan uh, that, uh, that could form the basis for a very hot and effective combat aircraft. There are asymmetric options that I'll describe briefly, but also we need to consider Taiwan's requirement for training. Real world experience may be beyond both political and, and uh, budgetary reach, but there are we can make increasing opportunities to include Taiwanese in what happens in the United States in terms of air and naval exercises, and we can also consider 
virtual training. Here we have from, again, from an arms show in Taipei in August, uh, a Taiwanese company that has uh, designed soldier simulation systems. These things can be linked. Soldiers from many countries can uh, perform the same exercise together. In terms of asymmetric options, perhaps one avenue that could change the balance would be electromagnetic launch or rail guns. This allows Taiwan to acquire mass at a cost-benefit advantage over China. Rail guns can be anti-missile, anti-aircraft, anti-ship, and ground attack weapons. In a shotgun capacity, they can loft thousands, tens of thousands of projectiles to meet an incoming missile volley at a fraction of the cost of that, even the Chinese missile volley. A second option, the, several US companies are working on new precision guided artillery shells. This is a, 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 a new innovation, an artillery shell that can see a target and intercept it, like a helicopter, slow moving aircraft, or a ship. This would give Taiwan 600 artillery shells a multi-role capability, an excellent advantage to deter invasion forces. And then finally, requirements for the United States to maintain the capacity to deter China, to win if we have to. My big recommendation is that we leave the shackles of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty and that we begin to build our own medium and intermediate range ballistic and cruise missiles to counter those of China's. We, there is a nice proposal out of Huntington and Ingalls for an arsenal ship. It has a huge radar that can see thousands of kilometers and then is armed with hundreds of anti-ballistic missile missiles, but it can also be armed with offensive missiles. We also need bombers. The current plan is to build 100 new stealth bombers. We should probably build 200. These are not, all, not just attack weapons, but they are information weapons as well. Probably the first platform to carry uh, usable laser weapons in the future. And we need to stay ahead of the PLA in the air by developing new air-to-air -air missiles for our fighters. If we can't afford to build enough fifth-generation fighters like the F-22, then we need to have all of our fighters equipped with the missiles that are superior to anything built in, in China or Russia. And I think that concludes my comments, Seth. Perhaps I spoke a tad long, but uh, uh, it's, it's a a comprehensive uh, a picture. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave this. Yeah. Well, first of all, a very good morning to you all. 
and thank you to Seth. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be back here at the Huston Institute. Uh, this morning I've been asked to speak to some of the things that we've seen in terms of current events, some of the latest news that's been out uh, regarding Taiwan. And of course, uh, there are three big things, the three big issues right now. The first is the early November meeting between uh, President Ma, Mr. Xi Jinping in Singapore. The second is the late November, the November 20th announcement that there's a new fisheries agreement between Taiwan and uh, the Philippines. And then the third, of course, is this outstanding arms sales notification that everyone's kind of been waiting for here in DC that we all expect uh, may be announced this week. So on the first one, regarding this historic meeting that took place in Singapore with the leaders of the Republic of China, Taiwan, and the People's Republic of China, the first time uh, this has happened uh, since the Chinese Civil War ended um, in 1949. A lot of good things have been written about this. There's been a lot of good commentary and analysis in the media about this. Perhaps what's not been said uh, or thought is how this could represent an opportunity for the United States to reflect on some of the contradictions inherent in our one China policy and perhaps an opportunity to reflect on some of the shortcomings in our approach to Taiwan. But I guess that's a bit more profound, a bit more subtle. That's not something that leaps out at you when you look at the media. And I think what is really striking when you look at the meeting between President Ma and Mr. Xi is the difference in approach. Here you have Taiwan approaching the meeting uh, with a tremendous level, I think, of diplomatic restraint and goodwill. We have President Ma really on a mission, I think, of peace. And it was interesting the way that the Chinese responded to that. Uh, it, it appears that Xi, Xi Jinping's response was to use this as an opportunity, not for peace and not for goodwill, but actually to manipulate or interfere with Taiwan's upcoming democratic elections. And so it was remarkable the difference in approach, I thought. Uh, and it was also remarkable the way that Xi Jinping lied to President Ma's face when he said that China's ballistic missiles deployed uh, across the Taiwan Strait are not aimed at Taiwan. I thought that was absolutely remarkable. I think it's also striking the way in which China has really seized this opportunity to advance its campaign to paint Taiwan's democracy and Taiwan's political dynamics as the bad guy in terms of cross-strait relations. Now, I think it's important that we're clear. Taiwan's party politics, uh, Taiwanese politicians, and Taiwan's dynamic democracy is not the problem. The, the problem is Chinese threats against Taiwan. Now, in terms of the upside, because I think there was a very real upside of the Singapore meeting, this, of course, sets a new precedent, right? If it's okay for the leaders of China and the leaders of Taiwan to get together and hold talks, there's no reason why the United States, at the, the highest levels, should not be holding similar exchanges with Taiwan. And so I think this is an opportunity for us to reevaluate some of the things that we've done under our One China policy. Because, of course, the objective reality is that there are two separate and sovereign governments. 
with two separate leaders. And I think that was very interesting to see that actually on display and to have that juxtaposition of Taiwan as a democracy and of China as an authoritarian state. And so there may be some opportunities uh, going forward to kind of reevaluate some of the, the things that we've been doing here in Washington in regards to Taiwan. Now, on the second issue, the, the Taiwan-Philippines Fisheries Agreement, what really stands out about this, and I can only just echo what Seth said, it's an example of two democracies setting aside tensions and emotions and actually addressing a very, very sensitive issue. Because this is, this is a very sensitive issue. And actually setting all that aside and working on solving real problems. Uh, it also shows that Taiwan's lack of diplomatic status in Manila is not a showstopper, that this can actually be overcome uh, and real results can be achieved. Now, of course, this is just one step in a longer process. This is not the, the end of the story in terms of uh, Taiwan-Philippine uh, interaction and exchanges and agreements, but it's a very important step. And when you take what Taiwan has done in the East China Sea with Japan, the fisheries agreement, and then you take this agreement with the Philippines in the South China Sea, they really do stand uh, in remarkable contrast to China's approach, right? Because Beijing's approach is to immediately militarize any maritime or sovereignty dispute. They immediately militarize it, and then they use their leverage in a coercive way to intimidate a weaker parties. Now, Taiwan could have easily done the same, because, of course, there is a power disparity between Taiwan and the Philippines. Taiwan has a much stronger navy, a much stronger coast guard. But, of course, that's not what Taiwan did. Taiwan followed the letter and the spirit of international law. And I think that's, that's a very good example for other parties in the South China Sea, and especially China, going forward. And then on the third issue, uh, the outstanding U.S. Uh, arms sales notification, we hope this week, to Taiwan. I think it's important to note the long delay and how much this is overdue. It has been four years and three months. There's been an arms sales freeze on Taiwan. Now, no one likes to talk about that, but that's the reality that no one in Washington at the highest levels of power have been willing to stand up to the pressure from Beijing uh, and actually push through an agreement. Now, some, of course, have suggested, I think very rightly, that our defense and security relationship with Taiwan is about much more than arms sales. And again, I think that's very true. But we've not done any of the other hard things over the past four years and three months to compensate. So, for example, we've not had high-level uh, Pentagon officials visit Taiwan. Uh, the Pacific Command and the Seventh Fleet have not sent uh, their high-ranking officers to visit Taiwan. We've not had ship visits in Taiwan. We've not had bilateral military exercises. We've not even invited Taiwan to participate in the Rim of the Pacific naval exercises or the Red Flag Air Force exercises. Uh, what has happened is that Beijing has presented the United States with a very clear choice, that either we can improve our relationship with them, especially in the area of military-to-military -military exchanges and interactions, either we can do that or we can choose to have a stronger relationship with Taiwan. And I think it's obvious 
the choice and what the choice should be. That there's no way, there's nothing that's worth backsliding on our commitments uh, to our friends. And so uh, my concern is that this long delay in arms sales, and indeed this trend that we've seen over the past 10 years, you know, from 1990 until 2005, there were arms sales notifications to Taiwan every single year. Every single year. And some years, four or five separate times per year. But after 2005, over the past decade, six years have gone by with no new notifications. At the same time, of course, over the past 10 years, China has doubled the number of ballistic missiles aimed at Taiwan. Uh, as Rick noted, they've deployed entire new classes of capabilities, including offensive cruise missiles, drones for first strikes against Taiwan, and also they've unveiled missile capabilities specifically designed and deployed for attacking U.S. Uh, aircraft carrier groups and for deployed uh, Air Force units. We've said nothing. There's not been a single diplomatic demarche of China. There's, there have been no high-level protests. Nothing apparently was said by President Obama to uh, Chairman Xi Jinping in September when they met. Uh, and so I think there's a real concern out there that we're signaling a certain level of weakness and a lack of resolve. Now, I don't think that's true. I think Beijing would be miscalculating if they thought that was true. But I think there's a concern out there that that has been the signal. And so if indeed later today or tomorrow or Friday at the latest, there is an arms sales notification, this new billion plus dollar package goes through, this would be a strategic message. This would be a big deal because this would be the United States signaling a renewed commitment to a free, democratic, and secure Taiwan. And that makes it very important at the strategic level. Uh, it's also important at the tactical level for the reasons that Rick pointed out. Uh, but I think first and foremost comes that political message both to Beijing and to Taipei. I think that's what's especially important about uh, this expected notification. And hopefully this will put us back on track to provide Taiwan with the regular and predictable arms sales notifications that it requires for force planning purposes to maintain a credible self-defense capability going forward. And so I think I'll just uh, end on that note and turn it back over to Seth for discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you both. Excellent presentations, as I've come to expect. Informative, insightful. Um, and uh, now it's your turn. So questions, please. And if you'd say to whom your question is directed, and then again, identify yourself, affiliation. Please, here in the front row. Yes. <laughs> there is. Uh, good morning. Thank you. My, my name is Arnold Zeitlin. I teach in China. Um, I'm directed to all the panels. Um, what is the impact on the PRC-Taiwan relationship of the very strong economic ties between the two areas? Well, uh, certainly we can start by saying that the impact on China has been fundamental. Uh, Taiwanese investment in China fueled the early stages 
of the rise that we see today. Uh, and the thankful, the, 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 the gratitude uh, that, is, that has been returned is in the form of missiles, aircraft, and this growing invasion potential. But in, in Taiwan, uh, there, there, the, the impact, of course, is, is crucial. Uh, Taiwanese appreciate and want this commerce to grow. Uh, and uh, they don't want to have to pay for, for this prosperity with their freedom. So what we have is, in Taiwan, uh, what one would expect from uh, a human being is uh, they want to have their, their employment, their job, their company, uh, and in their investment in China, but they also want to be able to decide their own future. And uh, the trends in Taiwan are very clear. Uh, despite this growing commerce, commerce that is very important for Taiwan's prosperity, it has had very little impact on shifting opinions in Taiwan toward some kind of uh, future in which they would give up their freedoms. You know, there's, there's this theory. Um, well, clearly not. The, the, the PLA, the growth in PLA capabilities, the concentration on building invasion capabilities, the current reorganization that's going to put those capabilities on a much more of a hair trigger, all of that is proceeding. I mean, this is, these, these are capabilities that have been, in many cases, 20, 20 plus years in the making, but uh, they are just now becoming realized and it's, it's only going to continue to grow. Well, it's a very good question, and I think just to address the first part, it's, it's really remarkable how similar Taiwan and Japan are in this regard, how both countries have a very robust trade uh, and economic investment relationship with China, and in both instances, uh, you have something that economists or I guess political scientists would like to call hot economics, cold politics, right? In both cases, you have this remarkable economic and trade relationship going on at the same time as you have high levels of uh, political tensions. And so I think it's remarkable in terms of uh, that. Now on the second part of your question, and it's a very good question, the deterrent effect. I don't think it has a deterrent effect on the PLA. But to the extent that the leadership in Beijing studies the importance of Taiwan investment and know-how into mainland China and into specific sectors of mainland China, specifically the, the Kunshan district of Shanghai, which is uh, very, it's the wealthiest part of, of China, it's the high-tech hub of China. If you look at the powerful role that Taiwanese businessmen and investments have had there, and also in Dongguan, it's perhaps an example of an economic deterrent. Because of course, if there was a conflict, uh, Taiwan companies, that the headquarters are all in Taiwan, they would immediately cut the relationship. Then what would happen is you would have tens of millions, literally tens of millions of middle class Chinese workers overnight would be unemployed. 
So you can imagine the effects that that would have on stability in China. And so I think there is a very real deterrent value uh, and a defensive value actually on Taiwan's part of having uh, the position that they have had and maintained in China. I, I, I agree with that, but it also has to be said that we've seen before examples in, in history in which economic integration simply fails to prevent conflict. In the whole, the whole uh, uh, crash of, of dominoes that led to World War I is, is perhaps the most important uh, example in, in the last hundred years, but uh, one would hope that this would produce a deterrent effect, but it's, it's simply not a guarantee. Uh, that guarantee has to come from, from other forces, uh, especially uh, a modernized and effective Taiwanese military. You have to remember that uh, a, uh, a British writer, Norman Angle, made it into the history books by uh, publishing a book on why the economic interrelationships in Europe made war virtually impossible. Unfortunately, the publication date was August of 1914. Um, uh, anyway, uh, a question in the back. There and then there. That's fine. Um, I'm Juliet, and I'm an intern here at Hudson. Um, I had a question about what you were talking about with the One, chi uh, the one China policy. Um, when will Washington start moving forward on you know, making adjustments to that policy? And will that involve um, strengthened diplomatic relations between uh, the US and Taiwan um, in terms of recognition um, and making sure that we're showing you know, a much clearer stance on who we support? Thank you. I defer to you, Ian. Well, it's a very good question, and I think this is something that we've already seen, that since Taiwan has become a democracy, and with every passing democratic election on Taiwan, it becomes increasingly difficult for anybody who spends time looking at the region, or anybody who lives in China or lives in Taiwan, not to notice the reality that there are two separate and sovereign governments. That while there may be, uh, in theory, that there may be one China, there are actually two governments, and the reality today is that it's two countries. Um, and so I think the United States government has already started to slowly adjust to this reality. Uh, and the ways that this has happened, I, I think, are subtle, but they're important. Uh, so for example, uh, AIT, our de facto or our unofficial embassy in Taipei, about two years ago started to fly the American flag uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Before that, we were not flying the American flag. Um, next year, or if there's a, a delay in the construction of the new facility, the new AIT facility, the year after, we will actually have uh, Marines, Marine Guards at AIT. Uh, it's not clear whether they'll be in uniform or not. Uh, hopefully they will. So things like that actually do signal uh, adjustments on the part of the State Department, uh, cabinet-level officials visiting Taiwan, for example. Now, there has not been a lot of that type of activity, uh, but there has been some. And so over time, I think the U.S. government is slowly but surely adjusting to this reality uh, in the Taiwan Strait. And I would expect to see that continue in the future. We had another question in the back, and then we'll come forward. 
Thank you. Dong Huiyu with China Review News Agency of Hong Kong. Um, um, I have a question for Mr. Fisher. Um, how would you evaluate the implication of the ongoing uh, PLA reform for the uh, Asia security situation, particularly for the cross-trade relations? You have, have touched upon a little bit on that. Could you please elaborate? Thank yes. you. Uh, for well over a decade, the People's Liberation Army has been considering uh, very significant structural and uh, what, what they call strategic strategy, what we call doctrine, uh, reforms to change the character of the PLA from a kind of uh, Soviet-inspired structure to one that is closer to Western structures, especially an American structure. Uh, the old structure included a, a basically a bifurcation between geographic commands and then operational commands. Operational command was something that was put together during a time of crisis from units in the territorial commands. The new structure makes the operational command the dominant structure. And there will be a reduction in geographic commands. Uh, they will facilitate uh, a much uh, closer and immediate connection between the central leadership, the central military commission, and new theater commands four or five of them. And what this will do is enable the command authority in Beijing, Xi Jinping and the generals, to initiate military activities far more rapidly and, and put together and develop new joint force competencies in order to fulfill missions. Now another major innovation that appears to be emerging from the reorganization is the formation of a new strategic service. There will be an army, a navy, and an air force as there was before, but instead of a second artillery, it appears we're going to be seeing something called the strategic support forces. And these will comprise or, or, or a, of the, the rocket forces, which will take the place of the second artillery, electronic information forces that will control electronic intelligence, signals intelligence, maybe radars, uh, uh, some, some degree of satellites, but they will also be in charge of computer network attack and information warfare. And then finally, there will be a new space force. The space force will control satellite launches, satellites, the manned space program, space warfare, and possibly missile defense missions. Uh, there, there is a great, there are a large number of, uh, of sort of rumor reports on, on Chinese military web pages about this new structure. There's been no official announcement about a space force, but the rumors say that the first commander of China's Space Force will be the guy who was probably in charge of the 2007 uh, 
anti-satellite tests, the one that worked. So China's Space Force commander could be somebody with real Star Wars experience from the beginning. A question up here in the front. Microphones arriving. Uh, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, a member of uh, Reagan Foundations in California. I have a couple questions. Uh, in terms of military strategy, some of the uh, U.S. base is trying to move to uh, Guam. And, and Japan, Japanese government is trying to help that. Also, uh, Japan is trying to set up uh, about 500, 600, 700 soldiers to uh, this island nearby Senkaku Island. That's where the dispute is. I forgot the name of the island, but Kirigashima yes. or something like that. Uh, so, how does that play out in terms of uh, Chinese aggression? Uh, that's, that's my question. Number two, I'm not so hot on the uh, one China policy. Was it 1949 or, or how, how did that come about? They started claiming Taiwan as part of China or, or how did, did the United Nations involved in it? Or I just have a question on that one. Thanks. Well, J Japan has announced that it's deploying troops to uh, the, uh, the Sakashima Islands near Taiwan as a defensive precaution because of China's increased military activities threatening uh, the Senkaku Dayutai. Uh, these forces will be deployed along with anti-ship missiles and anti-aircraft missiles. In addition, Japan is building up its amphibious assault capabilities, uh, buying Osprey uh, vertical tilt rotor helicopters. Uh, you know, in my opinion, deterrence in the East China Sea depends right now on the race between two systems the large Zuber hover, hovercraft that China has acquired and is building, and the Marine and then the Japanese Ospreys based in Okinawa, or possibly in the Southern Islands. The challenge is for the Japanese and the Americans to be able to get to those islands first, to beat the Zuber hovercraft. With the Osprey, that's possible. But China is also building its own tilt rotors and very large heavy lift helicopters. So this is a, a balance that is going to have to be monitored closely. And uh, yes, it is a tremendous advantage in terms of producing deterrence that Japan arm the southern islands. Of course, the Chinese will object. Already, uh, Taipei has signaled that it understands. It's made statements that it understands that the deployments are, are aimed not at Taiwan, but at, at another country, uh, without saying it, but clearly meaning China. All of that is positive. And then just for your second question, yeah. uh, there's a, a very rich literature on this, and I couldn't possibly do it justice, but basically our, our China policy is fairly straightforward. 
that we followed the three communiques <laughs> with China and we followed the Taiwan Relations Act and Reagan's six assurances to Taiwan. And that, that is sort of the foundation for our approach. Uh, now, if you actually read the three uh, communiques, if you read the Taiwan Relations Act and Reagan's six assurances, you'll see that they're very vague. And they were all written at a time before Taiwan was a democracy. So a lot has happened in the region over the past 35 years and counting. Uh, but again, I would expect to see U.S. policy to slowly adapt and adjust to the new reality uh, in terms of uh, cross-strait relations, in terms of Taiwan's government today, and in terms of uh, the developments that we're seeing in Beijing. And as far as Guam goes, you asked about Guam. Uh, that also is a story of slow adaptation. Uh, I, from Guam to Pearl Harbor, uh, American defenses are not sufficiently hardened. Um, we don't have enough of the kinds of missile defenses um, f against uh, Chinese missiles, Chinese aircraft, uh, that are needed for, for example, ammunition dumps, uh, petroleum dumps, uh, base facilities, harbor facilities in Guam and at Pearl Harbor also. So that's a place where improvement would be a sensible thing for the United States and it's been very slow in coming. Another, yes, we had a question over here. Hi, my name is Arthur Jai. I'm a visiting fellow at CSIS. The first question I have is regarding to the arms sales. Given the fact that the sensitivity of this announcement is right before the Taiwan election and pretty much in the end of the Obama administration, and also the South China Sea dispute, and also those items will be sold to Taiwan at pretty much everything that we already have in Taiwan. And it somehow gives me an uh, impression that this arms sale package has more effects on the political dimension instead of helping Taiwan's defense capability. And the second question is, um, as you mentioned uh, in both of your speeches that uh, President Ma and President Xi made a histo historical meeting in November, and do you think that is such a mechanism can be continued or can be implemented even uh, after the election in Taiwan in 2016? Thank you. Well, as regards to the arms package, uh, yes, it has an element of symbolism. Uh, I believe that it's, it's designed, uh, the timing is, is, is intended to uh, advance a, a nonpartisan uh, demonstration of support a uh, very important uh, aspect when once considering the election season. Uh, so it's not going to be controversial, save to the degree that, as you well point out, uh, it, it, is, it is a small package that, that meets some immediate requirements, uh, but does not address Taiwan's requirements that are going to grow very quickly in the not too distant future because of, of China's uh, broad uh, modernization and its capacity to very quickly tip the balance of power. Arthur, I would just say, uh, in response to your question, every arms sale to Taiwan has a mixture of utility. 
there's this, at the strategic level, you can look at it through that lens. It's very important. At the operational or campaign level, it's very important. And at the tactical level, it's very important. So in other words, what does it mean for Beijing? What does it mean for Nanjing? And what does it mean for, for example, forces and units in Xiamen or Fuzhou? Uh, each arms sale is going to have a different mixture of strengths for each of those observers. And it's going to have an effect on each of their calculations. For Beijing, it would have the effect of signaling, again, a renewed U.S. commitment, a, a new resolve for a free, democratic, and secure Taiwan. That's the signal that Beijing is going to get. Beijing's really not going to be interested in any of the battlefield applications. For Nanjing, where they actually do the operational planning for operations against Taiwan, at that level, at the Nanjing military region, it's going to have the effect of making them go back to the drawing board. That they're going, when they do their simulations and their studies, uh, as they constantly are, and when they're certifying their ability uh, to act against Taiwan, it forces them to take these new things into consideration. New numbers of capabilities, new types of ships, uh, or more of types of ships that the Taiwan Navy, the ROC Navy already has. Uh, all of these things force them to renew some of their assumptions in their defense planning. And then at the tactical level in Fuzhou or Xiamen, for example, where you actually have some of the frontline amphibious assault units, of course they're going to be very concerned. Because the last thing in the world they want to see is Taiwan have more Navy ships that are better. Uh, the last thing they want to see is um, new uh, or additional missile capabilities that could actually sink their ship. Uh, and so at each of these levels, I think it sends a very important message but again, each actor is going to receive it in a different way because each has a different uh, interest in the matter. And of course, it's very important for Taipei because, we, again, we have had an arms sales freeze to Taiwan. And so that makes it very significant for the strategic message of reassurance that we're sending, uh, or I, I hope we will this week send to Taipei ahead of the elections. It's really a symbol. Uh, but more than that, it's a strategic message of support for Taiwan's democracy. Now, is it a silver bullet? Is this going to solve all of Taiwan's many defense problems? Absolutely not. Of course not. And that's why we need uh, consistent and regular arms sales notifications, bearing in mind, of course, that this is not just about state-of-the-art equipment. This is not just about good equipment. This is also a training relationship that's involved. It's also about a maintenance and support relationship that's involved, and it's about a military-to-military -military relationship that develops between the U.S. and Taiwan as a result of every arms sales package. That there's actually a lot of American military personnel that will go to Taiwan uh, and contractors that will live in Taiwan uh, as the result of this package and every package that we do. And so for all of those reasons, I think it's very important. And I think we would be doing a disservice to uh, both our interests uh, here in the U.S. And, and in Taiwan if we just said, um, if we looked at it through only one prism, because I think there are a number of different prisms that we can approach this from, and they're all very important. Sir? Yeah, I'm uh, Swapan. I'm from Indian Embassy. I have a question to Dr. Fisher. Uh, you talked about the Chinese side focusing on amphibious capabilities, so I would like to know your assessment about 
uh, what is the Chinese capability of uh, landing capability in Taiwan? What is your assessment? I mean, they do not have any experience of, so how much is this capability? Well, I, w I would point to the island building in the South China Sea as having provided a very important uh, portion of an experience for an amphibious mobilization. I mean, they're, they're, they were transporting building materials and sand and other things. It's just as, it's, it's a small, small adjustment to take all of those barges and fill them with tanks, armored personnel carriers, and, and, and troops. So uh, what, we are, what we have witnessed over the last year and a half or so in the South China Sea is China practicing one aspect of what could become uh, a, a part of a, a major amphibious assault if they chose to mount it. And this is not just aimed at Taiwan. Uh, once the islands are consolidated and built and armed in the South China Sea, uh, this practicing, mo this mobilization of the barges will make it easier for the PLA to contemplate attacking other islands in the South China Sea. And then once those are taken, construction takes place, then there will be an additional capability for launching either punitive or occupational operations against Palawan in the Philippines. Um, but consideration of the civilian auxiliary mobilization that could assist the formal amphibious forces is, is something that we don't see a lot of. But I, I make special mention of it because it is important and it's a capability that is that is there for the PLA today. Now in the future, the four LPDs that have been launched will be supplemented by uh, probably two more LPDs and probably up to six LHDs. That will form the early core of a global amphibious projection capability for the PLA escorted by multiple carriers, large uh, cruisers, uh, third generation submarines and the such move, as we move into the 2020s and then the 2030s. I mean the first major large uh, supply uh, class uh, AOR has just been launched uh, within the last several days. Uh, China's 40,000 ton or more large uh, underway replenishment ship comparable to the largest underway replenishment ship operated by the American Navy has just been launched. And this is part of the beginning of, of China's ambition to become a global military power. And, and uh, we, could, we could see you know, uh, a significant number of these large ships out there uh, supporting uh, much larger underway battle groups, including significant amphibious projection capabilities. But for this, uh, but for the islands themselves to be of military use to mainland China in an actual conflict, this underlines what Rick was talking about when he discussed the anti-access policies of the of mainland China. Because if China is able to restrict American access, the U.S. Navy's access to the South China Sea, then those islands 
are become relatively safe. If they cannot restrict our access to the South China Sea, those islands are pretty useless in wartime, you know. They go away. And I would just agree with what Rick said in terms of the importance of looking at their civilian or their civil military. In, in Chinese, it's, it's actually military first. It's military-civilian lift capability. I think that's a very important thing to consider because if you look only at their military amphibious lift, it's woefully, woefully inadequate to project the force that would be required across the Taiwan Strait. That maybe uh, if they were completely uh, unimpeded, they could move about 40,000 troops across. And of course they would be uh, fired at the entire way uh, if they only used military transport. And so that's why the bulk of any invasion fleet, or probably be more than one, would be comprised of civilian vessels. Now, of course, there's many problems inherent in using uh, dual-use civilian vessels, of course. Uh, th their radios are easy to jam. Uh, it's very difficult for them to get in proper formation. Uh, many of them don't have experience with the unique uh, tidal situation, the weather patterns in the Taiwan Strait, um, and so on and so forth. A lot of these vessels uh, don't have the holes that would be required. Uh, they're single hold, and so if they take one hit, they would sink very rapidly. They don't have the ability to actually operate in a combat environment. And so I think it's a very important thing to look at going forward. But in, I guess the, 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 at its most essential level, the question is, does China have the ability to invade Taiwan today? And I think that the answer is absolutely not. They do not have the lift that's required. Bear in mind that it's more than just moving troops to a beach. You also need uh, thousands of helicopters. You need hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, planes to drop in the airborne forces uh, and other forces. Uh, and to, once you have an airhead to actually bring in uh, forces uh, from the air, if you look at all the things that are required in that particular scenario, China is not there yet. And it may be quite some time before they are there. But what I think is significant, as Rick pointed out, is that is, uh, they're, they're very familiar with their weaknesses in this area. And over time, they are certainly improving their capabilities. And this is definitely the case when you consider strategic airlift. Right now, China has less than 20 IL-76s, which your Air Force is very familiar with. Um, the bulk of strategic airlift exists within the military civil component, the reserve component of uh, cargo lift within civilian airlines and the degree to which they will also use passenger aircraft. Uh, Chinese airlines have about 120 large uh, airlift aircraft that, that are regularly, these are regularly exercised in mobility exercises for the PLA. Uh, 747s are stuffed with airborne tanks and away they go. But last year, uh, China's, uh, the PLA's National Defense University produced a report on civil military integration. Part of this report that gained a lot of attention in the Chinese media was the, the recommendation that China build 400 of its new Y-20 uh, large airlift aircraft. This is a, an aircraft comparable to the American C-17. We only have about a 220 
C-17. So if China bought or built 400 C-17 aircraft, that would be a very considerable addition to their strategic airlift capability. But that was just a policy suggestion from a military university. Whether it's going to happen, we have to see. We have time for one more question, and then the room will turn into a pumpkin, 1130. Hi. Uh, my name is Angie Zhang, uh, visiting fellow from the CSIS. I have one uh, quick question. Uh, since we know the uh, um, U.S. has armed sales to Taiwan, uh, the last time is four years ago. And this time, the issue has been continuing for these uh, few months. And I wonder, is there any sign or um, measure has been taken by the China um, in uh, slowing down or stop the military-to-military -military exchange uh, between the U.S. and China has been taken? Because four years ago, um, the, the military exchange has been stopped or slowing down. How about this time? Is there any sign that uh, China has taken his revenge uh, regarding these arms sales to Taiwan? Thank you. Well, uh, there are uh, current today, there are three PLA Navy ships in Pearl Harbor. Uh, they're due to depart on Thursday. So I guess Friday would be a good day to announce uh, the arms sale. But uh, the, the, the Chinese reaction uh, is, is, is going to be uh, overblown. And uh, uh, it's completely uh, expected that there will be some uh, penalty. Stopping military-to-military uh, -military, uh, dialogue is, is uh, their, one of their favorite tools. Uh, they, they, they use it because they judge that, that we place a great value on this activity so they can help create the impression uh, within uh, a community of, of uh, American officials and uh, some, some military officers uh, that, we, that we have to do something to uh, earn this privilege back. Now, personally, I, I don't place a great deal of, of stock in our military-to-military -military relationship with the PRC. I don't think they take it seriously. Yeah, yes, indeed, we have uh, this agreement and that agreement. Uh, uh, they, they come up every once in a while. But every agreement is, is, is never finished. And uh, China's willingness to uphold it is never uh, the same as, as uh, uh, the degree to which we feel ob obliged to uphold an agreement, such as the, the incidents at sea agreement from, from last year. Uh, we signed the agreement. Uh, we'll uphold it because we think it's a, it's, we're, we're from a country of, of laws, and a, a legal culture, so we feel obliged to uh, uphold this agreement. But the Chinese submarine uh, uh, behaved in a very threatening manner that in a way that could have sparked uh, a, a major incident that could have uh, got, gone out of the control of, of both sides. So yes, there will be a Chinese reaction. Uh, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, if they choose to use the mill-mill lever, uh, that'll, be, that'll be fine, perhaps even better. And I, I would just agree with Rick, because the, China's presenting us with a, a very simple choice. 
They treat this as a zero-sum game. Uh, the idea of a win-win does not apply. That either we can continue to have uh, a stable interaction with China, especially, in, I think, you're absolutely right in regards to the military-to-military -military exchanges we have with China. We can choose that, or we can choose to support Taiwan. That is the, the fundamental choice that China presents us with. And in my mind, the, the answer, our response, should be obvious. That there's no price that is, there's nothing that's worth backsliding on our commitments to regional security and to Taiwan's uh, free and fair <coughs> elections and its democracy and its security. Uh, and so to the extent that China does treat this as a zero-sum game, I think that should be a very easy response uh, on our part. China's opposition to American arms sales, in my mind, is the equivalent of China declaring that it has the right to murder a democracy. And uh, I think for, for most Americans, that is uh, highly offensive as it is threatening. And uh, China's insistence that it has the right to do this will only result in increasing our resolve. So for another reason, I welcome China using the mill-mill lever against us. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us today uh, and for your thoughtful questions. Um, Rick, Ian, thank you for your contributions. Excellent, and we look forward to seeing you at other Hudson events in the future. Thank you and happy holidays as well. <laughs>